beloved of God. That's how, how John addresses his church in this passage. Uh, I'd invite you to open up God's Word this morning to 1 John uh, chapter 4. It's in the last few chapters of the Bible, right before Revelation. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love to fix that problem uh, today and get you that. But there also is a text provided for you in your order of worship. This is the second Sunday of Advent. Theme is love, like we've been talking about just a minute ago. And last week we looked at the theme of hope of hope. And we talked about how confusing that is in our culture because oftentimes when we say the word hope, we mean wish. It's a hopeful desire, it's a a want, it's a wish, it's a desire. However, when the Bible talks about hope, it speaks about it very differently. It's not a wish, it's a certainty. And you know that you know that you know that you know that God is going to come through. And it may look like circumstances are very difficult right now in this moment, but your hope, your certainty, is that in the future God will work everything out to your good in spite of your current reality. You are waiting on a person, God himself. And this week we're talking about love. And as we use the Advent lesson this morning from Isaiah chapter 7, there is this principle that that Jesus coming fulfills a prophecy that Emmanuel, which means God with us, God is coming down to be with us. And Christmas is a fulfillment of that. It's the title of the sermon this morning, Love Came Down to Be With Us. John's writing one of his last letters here. He's at the end of his life. They think this is written in about 85 to 90 A.D. And Jesus died around 30 to 33. We don't know the exact time, but somewhere in that time frame. And so Josh is, Josh, Josh is right over there. John, rather, is, uh, he is preaching at the last stages of his life, writing this letter uh, to them. And he's emphasizing so many of the things that he emphasizes in the Gospel of John, that Jesus came to love you, that you must love one another. And what he's arguing, using the example of Christmas. He's using Christmas to command our love for each other. Now, I'm going to do something that I've been warned against. Uh, I've been warned against using Star Wars illustrations in Scripture, okay? And so I know there'll be three of you out here who's really excited and the rest of you don't care, all right? For, the, for you three, listen up, okay? All right, so this past year, finally got Disney+, Plus, and now I had the opportunity to go through all the Star Wars garbage. But don't worry. We're not going to talk about how the Force is compared to the Holy Spirit. You can do that over lunch, all right? Whatever you want to do. I want to make a simple point, all right? I got into this series called The Mandalorian, which is after the Star Wars stuff. And it's interesting, Mandalorians are warriors, that's all you need to know, and they live by a very strict code, okay? That's all you need to know. It's interesting, though, the main character in the story is a Mandalorian, but he became one because a group of Mandalorians saved his life. They saved his life when his parents just died, and they took him in as one of their own. And he is one of the most devout Mandalorians there ever were. Why? Because the Mandalorians loved him. They loved him when he felt helpless, and he then changed his life to be like them as a result. Isn't it interesting so many times in life that happens to you when somebody will love you in a very profound way, and that'll shape the rest of your life? I've heard so many stories about, for example, uh, someone's mother who's, who's dealing with cancer, some kind of really difficult treatment, and they're in the ICU for so long, and then that person ends up becoming an ICU nurse or a doctor. 
Or very often times, I ask this every time I ever have to do physical therapy, I say, why would you get into physical therapy? And very often it's because they were playing a sport or something, and they got injured, and they were able to see a physical therapist, and that intrigued them because they took such good care of them. Isn't it fascinating how when someone shows profound love to us, it changes us. It changes our desires. It might even change our vocation or the course that we live in life and that's exactly what john is arguing here about god's love for us is that god's love for us should have such a profound effect that we then live like god in the sense that we love others and so that is the passage that we're going to look at that when we deeply feel the love of someone else or from god it changes us when you experience love you are never the same again and that is especially true when you experience the love of God. So let's look at this text this morning. Give me your attention and give the Lord your attention now as we read God's word. 1 John chapter 4, I'll begin reading at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, as we listen to your word read and meditate on it now, we ask God very simply that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of, of our hearts together be worthy in your sight. Speak to us. Help us to worship you over the word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a big idea for the morning. Christmas is when love came down. And if you experience it, you will love others. If you experience the love of God which came down at Christmas time, that love will have a profound exp uh, a transformation in you. You will not be the same and you will have to love others. That God's love is demonstrated at Christmas, and the demonstration or the manifestation of God's love at Christmas is both a command and the power to love each other. Five quick points this morning. First, Christians are defined by their love, and so is God. Christians are defined by their love, and so is God. Verses 7 through 8. You know, identity is such a big deal these days. Everybody's talking about how we identify or how we should identify or how we want to identify. And it is a real struggle for many, perhaps some, in this room. But the conversations around identity, honestly, these days seem to be getting a little silly. And I think everyone can realize that. In fact, one, it was a, I watched an interview recently where uh, someone asked a black man if he identified as black. And he just started laughing. Like, Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, it's pretty obvious to see. But it does present a really interesting question. How, 
how should we define ourselves? Or a better question, how does God define us? And in 1 John, we get the answer. Verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Love comes from God. In other words, the source of love comes from God. True love has a source, and it's in God. You cannot truly love one another if you don't know the love of God. Because He's the source. You can't give something that you've never experienced. True love comes from its source in God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. I'm not saying that people who don't know God can't do loving things. That wouldn't be true. All of our experience has been different in life, right? But what we're saying is that God, being the source of love, is the only one who can fuel the type of love that can move past obstacles that come into our life. Who gives you the equipment to forgive someone who wronged you and to love them in spite of that? Who gives you the equipment to love your enemies, people who have done awful things to you? There is no other teaching or religious system in the world that can give you that equipment. Only one. Christianity says you can love your enemies because you were God's enemy. And he loved you in spite of that. Everyone who loves God has been born of God. How do I know that I'm a Christian? It's a good question. How do I know if I have been born of God? Do you know God? The answer to those questions come from a love of God. We are defined by our love for God and our love for each other, just like He is defined by love. At King's Church, we always talk about three things, experiencing God, finding community, and living on purpose. But the finding community and living on purpose always flow out of a legitimate experience of who God is. What does it mean to experience God? Experiencing God means that you have a profound awareness of the grandness of who He is. And in light of that holiness and grandness and majesty, you have a profound awareness of your unworthiness called sin and a need to change from that. And then you have a profound awareness of the message of Christmas, the fact that God came down to love you. And that message that we call the gospel, the good news, changes you, and you encounter God. How? In worship. In your heart aiming towards God. In faith. Saying, I believe that that reality about who God is and who I am is true. And then repentance of sin. And that encounter, that experience, has a transformative effect and allows us for the first time to love God. And allows us for the first time to give love in a brand new way. In a deep and powerful and overriding way that can overcome adversity that otherwise we didn't have the tools for. Whoever does not love God does not know God. What exactly does it mean to love? I love what Matt Chandler, one of my favorite preachers, said one time about love. He said, love has become for us the word love has become for us what he called it a junk drawer word. All y'all have drawers in your house, right? And the only purpose for this drawer is when people are coming over, throw everything in it, 
right? We all have junk drawers in our house. Unfortunately, love for us in our culture has become a word kind of like that. We put anything we want to it. We can love burritos and mom at the exact same time, right? We don't, there, we, there, it's, it's hard. If, if someone were to come into our culture and learn what love means, they would be confused because of how loosely we seem to use the word. Well, how does the Bible use the word? Well, in the Greek language, it's oftentimes a little more specific than the English language with some of these things. And here's a good category of that. There are three main words that the Bible uses for love. The first one is called philio. It means friendship love, right? Companionship. The other is eros. It's romantic love. And then the final one is agape, which is the, which is the, the word for love that's used all over this passage so many times. And it means divine love. The love that, that God, that only God can give. Agape is the deepest, most profound love. It's the source of all love. And then God says, He is love. Isn't that fascinating when you think about all the ways that God could define Himself? There's several ways that we define God in Scripture. It's not like love is God's only attribute, because it's not. He's holy and a lot of other things. But it says, God is love. Now this is fascinating to me. Christianity has the only God that can possibly be loving. And here's why. Because God is both three and one at the same time. The doctrine or the belief about the Trinity proves this reality that God is love because love naturally has to have an object. It naturally has to be aiming outward, like Josh said in the children's sermon. It ha- love is something you have to be able to exercise it and show it and do it. And God can be love because He was one in three at the same time. Still is. And He has love within Himself. God was fully satisfied, fully loved, and fully complete before He created a thing. He does not need you and he does not need me. He had the complete fulfillment inside of himself. And in many ways, the greatest thing that God ever did for you was to create you so that you could experience that love. Creation itself is an opportunity for us to know who God is. God is love. And God can be love. Because he's three and one at the same time. You are defined by your love. Did you see that in the passage? God defines us. We should be defined, if you call yourself a believer in Christ, by our love. Christmas is when the love of God came down, and if you experience it, you will love others. We talked about, number one, that Christians are defined by their love, and and so is God. Point number two is called the proximity or the closeness of love, the proximity of love. Proximity is just how close you are to someone. Think physical space or geography, okay? I'm, if I'm in close in proximity, that means I'm near, the nearness, okay, of love. Over the past several years, especially as I'm getting older and my family's growing, I've thought a lot about friendship because whenever your career's getting going and your family's getting started, you don't have a lot of time. And you start to wonder about, I've started to wonder, how do I build friendship into my life? How do I schedule time and make intentional phone calls and texts and different things like that? Because I think all of us would agree that friendships are one of the things that make life sweet. 
And it was interesting. I was listening to the Focus on the Family podcast this week, and, and someone did a lot of research, as typically they do before one of these podcasts, and they said, guess what the number one factor is for two people becoming best friends. And so it would be a fun game for us to play. And probably all of us would naturally think about companionship or compatibility or maybe similar interests. And she said, all of those things are true. They're just way down on the list. The number one factor for people who become friends is they're around each other a lot. Period. You just tend to be friends with the people that you see all the time. Geography or proximity is one of the core and fundamental principles that leads to the fact that you have a best friend. Now, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. I hope this blows your mind. That God wanted to be near to you. Jesus calls his disciples friends. You, through faith in Christ, can have friendship with God. That should blow our minds. We, we sing this song at Christmas time that's, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. We are anticipating the reality of God being with us. John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you. One of the most beautiful realities of the gospel is this. That God loves you enough just to simply want to be around you. And the gospel makes that possible. That you can be near to God now. That through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be closer than the closest person in your world right now. You can be closer to God because what God has done and because God gives you his spirit, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And so it begs the question, are you friends with God. Do you get close to God? Do you spend time with Him? Do you prioritize worship, whether it's here, like on a Sunday morning, or just time to read the Word and pray? Do you get close to God? Because He has literally moved heaven and earth to get close to you. All of us long for friendships, and we should. Remember that second big thing that we talk about at King's Church, find community? That's here in this passage as well. In, in so many ways, the, one of the biggest tragedies that we can see on Christmas morning is someone by themselves. Does that break your heart? It oftentimes does mine. And one of the things that we've done in the past in our family is we've been able to have a foreign exchange student or somebody like that spend Christmas with us, and they were so thankful. Because that's not a time when you want to be alone. We want to be together. And I think that's one of the applications of this passage. We want to, to be together as a church and prioritize time together as a church and also prioritize time with our friends and family and, and co-workers that God might be leading us to because they don't know him yet. Just spending time. Young Life, which is an evangelistic ministry that ministers to high school students, often says the biggest part of what we do is we just show up. We're just there. Now, they preach the gospel, right? But one of the greatest things they do is just show an interest in someone else's life. One of my favorite pastors, Mark Dever, 
in uh, Washington, D.C., he actually takes this uh, principle about proximity and geography to the next level. And y'all know D.C., and it's really busy, and it's tough to get places and travel. And he says, if you really, you before, if you're moving to D.C., you should find your church before you find your house. Because you need to know where you need to live. And he encourages his congregation to either buy a house that's close to the church, and if they can't do that, find out where other people in the church live and move into that neighborhood, right? And one of his congregants actually took that, uh, took that advice and bought a house that was more expensive and uglier than one they could have bought on the other side of town, but they were in a neighborhood with five or six people that go to the church, and they're all best friends, and they're in and out of each other's house and stuff like that. I simply, I'm not saying, there's other ways to accomplish this. You can make sure you carpool or meet at the same place on Tuesday nights. There's other ways to accomplish proximity. I'm just saying it, it is important. It's important for us to be around each other and so important to God that he did it himself. Number three, Christmas manifested God's love and Easter removed all doubt. Christmas manifested God's love and Easter removed all doubt. Verse nine again. This is how God showed his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Some of your translations may say made manifest at the beginning. That, that God, this is how God's love was made manifest or made clear or demonstrated or, or clearly shown. Christmas is the greatest display of God's love. It's when it was introduced in its fullness to the world. No, Again, no other religion has this claim. Every other religious system in the world says you must go up. You must work hard. You must obey this. You must go up. In Christianity, God came down. He came down to be with us. And more than that, he paid the debt of God's wrath. And that's Easter. Easter should remove all doubt. This is love. The book of Romans says it a little different. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, we didn't clean ourselves up. While we were still sinners, God's love for God loved us. Do you doubt God's love for you? I know the answer to that question. Yes. Depends on the season. There are all times whenever something's going wrong in our life or, or, or we feel the guilt of our sin or whatever the situation is and we doubt that God could love us or does love us. And I want to encourage you. Christmas is the demonstration that he was willing to come down and Easter was the proof. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you've done, the answer to that question of does God love me, if you place your faith in him and repent of your sin, is yes, he does. Point number four, the responsibility of love. The responsibility of love. Now, remember how I said a minute ago that you got, we've got all the big three, experience God, find community, live on purpose in this sermon. Well, here we got to live on purpose. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The manger and the cross should fuel our love for one another. 1 John 4, 8. For God, for whoever does not, excuse me, 
For whoever does not love does not know God because he is love. Jesus, on two different occasions, in Mark 12 and Matthew 22, talks about the summary of all, the God, of all God's law. Love God, love man as yourself. Love humanity, love God. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As the summary, there is an ought here. Did you hear it? We ought to love each other. There is a responsibility here that we love each other because we have the responsibility to love each other and because now for the first time in Christ we can. Did you catch that in verse 9? He sent his only son, one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Did you catch that? We might live through him. This is the essence of what it means to live a Christian life that we might live through him, that God gives us his spirit through our connection to Jesus Christ. John describes it in John 15, chapter 5, like this. I am the vine and you are the branches. If he remains or abides and dwells, if he abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see that? God wants something from, to do something with your life. If you are in Christ, God wants something from your life. You should be demonstrating God's love to other people. You should be loving to other people. But, how, but you might ask a very legitimate question of, how do I go about that? And this passage, John 15, 5, says that it goes like this. If you're attached to Christ, God supplies the power. If you're attached to Christ, God supplies the pathway, and your life produces fruit. Another way to say that would be the way that John says it here, that we might live through him. That for the first time, we have the tools to really love someone. And not the Christmas morning type of love, which is a fun type of love, right? We, we're, it's, it's a great time. We've, we've prepared. We've got these presents. We've wrapped them up. We're all together. We're eating good food and all of that stuff. That is definitely a wonderful show of love. But love really hits the road when we've been wronged or we've wronged which both happens and we get the tools from that from God himself how do we love other people how are we supposed to show that I'd like to give you three suggestions briefly first one is intentionality we kind of already talked about that with the proximity thing intentionally being around and helping other people and just just sharing your life number two I would say forgiveness when we sin against someone else or when someone sins against us, we ask for their forgiveness or we receive it when they ask for it. Or, this is the harder thing, we begin to work forgiveness in our heart before they even ask for it. Okay? And then the third one I would say is service. Giving something to someone that they don't deserve. Because these are all things that God has done for us. That is part of our purpose. And then the final point this morning is that your love makes God's love complete. Your love makes God's love complete. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. I'd love for you guys to spend some time, maybe sometime during the week, just meditating on this idea. That you, as a flawed person, have the opportunity to make God's love complete as you show love.
towards other people. You know, as we talk about living on purpose, the first aspect of it is that we do well to love each other. That the church communal is a witness to the glory and power of God. That we love each other so well that people looking in go, there must be something to what they believe. And then the second aspect of love that God calls us to here is to love people who are outside or on the margins or in our spheres of influence. Maybe someone who is otherwise unlovable, like we were before Christ loves us. And here in this passage, it says that in that moment, we make God's love complete. That God gets so much glory from the fact that while we were far away, he went and got us and poured his love out on us, and that love transformed us, and now we are a conduit of God's love to the world. It makes it complete. This morning, as we finish up and conclude, if you are not a Christian or if you're unsure of where you are with the Lord, I'd love to ask you a couple questions. To help you understand that, because I think clarity is probably the best thing that you need. If you don't have some things in your life, then you know where you stand. You can't say that you've been born again from above, that you love God with a deep love, that, that God's love has had such a transformative power on you. If, if those are question marks in your mind, know this that you probably don't know him, but you can right now. God's love is available for you in this moment. And if you'd love to talk, I'd love to talk, but please don't let another day go by without experiencing this love and being able to experience it forever. If you do call yourself a believer in Christ and you have tasted, you have experienced the love of God, you now have the tools to love other people. I love the difference between my shop and someone who really does carpentry works shop. If you come into my garage, you'll find things nice and organized, hung on the wall in right places, put in their nice little slots. You want to know why that is? Because I don't ever do anything. That's why that is. If you go into a real carpenter shop, it's a mess. Sawdust everywhere, can't find the tape measure, the, the drill bits are in a mason jar or something like that because they're using them all the time because they actually build stuff, right? And I hope that's like our lives, that we got the tools and we use them. And our carpentry shop might be a little out of whack from time to time, but that's because work's getting done. Amen? We move into the Lord's Supper in just a minute. And it's a beautiful reminder of both of these realities that are present in this passage. God's love for us and our love for each other at the same time. Christmas is when the love of God came down. And if you've experienced that, then you'll love other people. Father in heaven is... We close out our time as we're worshiping you over the word and move into this time of Lord's Supper. Lord, we just want to pray that you would let the transformative power of your word have a work in our lives in this moment 
and maybe even throughout the week. That we will have heard from your word and seen the glory and beauty of who you are. And we pray, God, that you would use that profoundly both in our life and that we would also make your love complete by loving other people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we do move now to taking uh, the Lord's Supper, you have an insert in your order of worship that hopefully you've had an opportunity uh, to look through. I will say this as we think about the Lord's Supper is this is a meal that you need a reservation for. And this is a, a supper for Christians. And this is a time where we can taste and see the goodness of God as we find Him in the gospel. This is a meal that symbolizes all that is done for us, that we needed a perfect blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of God, like was mentioned in this passage. We needed someone to assuage the wrath of God. And this passage told us that that's what Jesus' blood did. His divine blood did that. But we also needed a sacrifice, a perfect human, flawless sacrifice. And we have that in Jesus as well. And also we have the communal nature and the picture of the church represented in this supper as well. But if you're unsure of where you are with the Lord, it would be a good thing for you not to take the Lord's Supper today and figure that question out. Or if you're harboring some kind of bitterness or, or hatred in your heart and there's somebody that you need to deal with or needs to deal with you, it would also not be a good idea to take the Lord's Supper today. Scripture commands against that. On the other side of the coin, know this, that this is a table for sinners. And perfection has never been the standard. Got it? A couple notes about how we take the Lord's Supper here. You'll be dismissed from the back to the front, and we'll gather around this table. We do have a gluten-free option if you're gluten intolerant, so just wave me down, and I'll be happy to give um, you that. And for those of you who are sitting and waiting, use this time to prayerfully meditate on the Lord uh, together and, and enjoy it together. Let me read the words of the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Lord in heaven, as we pray this morning, we would ask God for a special communion with you through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That by the power of the Holy Spirit and our connection to Jesus Christ through faith, that you would feed us in our souls. Help us to commune with you and each other. And I would ask God now that you would set apart these elements, the bread and the cup, from a normal use to a sacred use as we practice what you've taught us to do in taking the Lord's Supper. We ask in Jesus' name.